That's my hello, Emily Reese. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by me, radio host Emily Reese, and sommelier Jill Mott. Today we're going to talk about collaborations, uh, on my end, a beer and a wine Mm -hmm. collaboration. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're not collaborating with each other to make a mead (laughs) of sorts or like a a weir or a bine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm talking about two separate collaborations, one of which is oriented around wine, mm-hmm. and the other is a beer collaboration. Love it. Yeah. What are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about two different classical music collaborations of sorts. God, one, of which I, one of which I think is just a big yeah. shit show. One is a huge shit show. It's great, though. It's so great. <laughs> yeah. So where should we start? We should start, I feel like, with drinking. my collaboration yeah. and drinking. I mean, yeah. 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 Um, the weather was a train wreck in the Loire Valley in 2016 in Aze le Rideau, which okay. is the village that this incredible winemaker, Quentin Bourse, works in um, and vinifies his wine. His winery is called Le Sot de Lange. He's one of the most sought-after natural winemakers in the central Loire Valley in France. And in 2016, like I said, weather was shite. Wow. So there were two frosts, one wiped out fruit, fruit set, I imagine, and the second wiped out fruit entirely, it, Pinot Noir, I should say, and a few other few other grapes. He did have some of his own grapes that he made, um, but it wiped out the majority of his harvest. So instead of pouncing around the Loire Valley, finding other grapes from other growers who are going to obviously do it well, He's like, screw it. I've got a great friend in southern Germany <laughs> who has awesome Pinot Noir uh, in the Baden-Württemberg area. His name is Andy Knaus. And he said, yo, Knaus, send me some Pinot Noir. <laughs> Knaus says, okay. So it took two days in refrigerated trucks to ship Pinot Noir and Riesling. We're going to taste the Pinot today. Okay. To the central Loire Valley. Yeah. And then Quentin vinified it uh, as he would vinify anything else. Okay. Uh, which is great. And I'll get to that after we, after you talk a little bit and after we taste. Did, 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 okay, sorry. Did they ship the grapes whole? They did. Yep. So they didn't, once you crush, so the minute you snip grapes yeah. off a vine, right, you're yeah. immediately starting the degradation process. Right. Um, quicker than you would if you were to leave them on the vine, obviously. Sure. Um, and if you were, if they were to crush them or macerate them in any way, um, you'd that would go like exponentially quicker. Yeah. So they left them whole, kept them refrigerated, okay. um, and, and got them there in forty-eight hours or less. Wow. So that's that's what I'm going to talk about. We're going to taste wow. that. Uh, okay. Today, are we, we going to taste it right now? I don't know. We should. Yeah. And then we can talk about I'd what we that. taste maybe in a little bit. <laughs> I would love that. Thank you. Yeah. Discours and pours. Discours and pours. Oh, it's so pretty. Oh, it's so grapey. Now, we talked about Pinot Noir last time. Remember, we tasted yeah. the German Pinot. Mm-hmm, Tasting mm-hmm. another German Pinot, but but made in the Loire Valley. Yeah. And we'll talk about why this is so awesome and screwed up on so many levels in a moment. <laughs> but um, can you smell automatically the difference between the two? Yeah. It's just straight away how more how much more wild this smells. None of the grapes in here were were his that survived. None of his survived the frost? That I know of. That's okay. correct. Okay. So these are all German Pinot grapes. Yes. 
neat. What do you smell? I tasted it. Sorry. No, let's maybe get to that in a sec. So let's, <laughs> let's, so let's, let's chat. I'd love to hear what you smell in this collaboration yeah. wine, but I'd love to get to some music first. Okay. Uh, where do you want to, do you want to start with the 20th century French collaboration or would you like to start with <laughs> the, uh, the German, uh, Austrian, Hungarian, whatever? Let's, let's start with, uh, Josef Joachim. Josef Joachim. Yes. Yosef uh, Joachim, uh, born in 1831, lived till 1907, and uh, was just an com- incredibly virtuosic violinist who kind of burst onto the stage when he was quite young. And Didn't he play his first concert before 10? Yeah, first public yeah. concert at like seven Way or young. nine. I think or it was like even that. something younger. Yeah, it was, it was super young. He was quite a talented player and apparently just had this like really warm, beautiful um, sound and just the slightest bit of what we would call rubato, where you're kind of pushing and pulling at the time and kind mm. of slowing down and speeding up a little. Uh, apparently, just a really, um, you know, people just loved to hear him play. brought to Germany to a music festival. And it was the 31st annual. I love that because it's like, how old was this thing? I mean, so old. The 31st Lower Rhine Music Festival in Dusseldorf in May of 1853. So Joachim is like 21 or something like that. And Robert Schumann was the music director of this uh, festival. And so he asked Joachim to come and play Beethoven's Violin Concerto which Joachim was kind of uh, known for reviving, you know, bringing yeah, because back it to wasn't, the stage. Yeah, because it wasn't well... It wasn't popular at the yeah. time. I mean, you know, I mean, it was probably maybe considered out of date or something, because, you know, this would have been, what did I, what did I just say, 1853? And so, you know, Beethoven's Violin Concerto written probably right around 1800. So, you know, maybe just thought of out of fashion or something and just wasn't getting played, and Joachim really revived that. Um, but through Joachim's then, uh, what became a, a long friendship with Robert Schumann and Robert's wife, Clara Schumann, and uh, Clara, who was a very talented pianist, would accompany Joachim on recitals, and they performed together quite a bit. Um, uh, Robert and Clara Schumann introduced Josef Joachim to a young Johannes Brahms, and that, the Brahms and Joachim friendship, was a lifelong friendship, even though they had a falling out later. Uh, they still had a high regard and respect for one another, and Brahms ended up writing his violin concerto for Joachim. So we're going to hear a little bit of that today. What movement of the three movements yeah. of the violin concerto that Brahms wrote, which one are we going to listen to? Um, I think we're going to listen to the happy third movement, Rondo. The first movement is, I mean, Brahms is... Brahms. Brahms, <laughs> Brahms was a dark fella at times. I think he, he just had a lot of, uh, I don't know, angst. Mm-hmm. 
There is also a very famous quote about this violin concerto that Josef Joachim said, and we'll get to that um, maybe in just a second after we hear just a little bit of it. And the reason we're featuring it, correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. is that um, Brahms, as he was writing it, asked for this virtuoso violinist's mm-hmm. opinion mm-hmm. multitudinous times, right? Like, tell me what you think of this. Tell me yeah. what you think of that. You know, he supposedly, he wrote the cadenza at the end of the first movement of which, mm-hmm. you know, is kind of grandiose. But so that's where the collaboration comes into Yep, play, and, right? and just the fact that Brahms wrote it for him. And of course, people write music for people all the time. But um, this is one of those situations where it was highly collaborative uh, to have Brahms, you know, send Joachim the part and say, what do you think of this? And then Joachim would make changes. And Joachim did that with a number of composers on a number of things. And it was premiered, right, Um, with Mm -hmm. um, Joachim playing Mm -hmm. the violinist part, and then Brahms was conducting, correct? Yes. In Leipzig, I think it was. There you go. Let's do it. That's the place. All right. So this is the last movement. This is the finale. And it's in a a form called Rondo, which we'll talk about someday on the show, because Rondos are fun. But in any event, here is a little bit of a very famous recording of a violinist named Yasha Heifetz playing with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra led by the great Fritz Reiner. Delightful quote by Josef Joachim about the Mendelssohn Violin Concerto, the Brahms Violin Concerto, mm. the Brook Violin Concerto, and the Beethoven Violin Concerto. And Joachim says, The Germans have four violin concertos. The greatest, most uncompromising is Beethoven's. The one by Brahms vies with it in seriousness. The richest, most seductive was written by Max Brook." but the most inward, the heart's jewel, is Mendelssohn's. And I love how, like, each one of them gets their due. You know, he's, he's, like, giving such praise to both of them, or all four of them, I mean. But, but yeah, uh, it's very true that Brahms is incredibly serious. And that first movement, I mean, it's funny to me because it's in D major, but that first movement is heavy. I feel like it's so emotional in so many ways. There's like, there's so many technical things that are happening too that are 
both virtuosic on the part of the violinist, but then that it, you can tell that it's very um, German, serious. <laughs> yeah. um, it's beautiful. Yeah. Should we match the seriousness with some mm, serious, but not so serious, Pinot Noir? Yes. And I say that uh, with all the love in the world for this Pinot Noir because it's serious in a way that Pinot Noir from France can be. Like, it's got edge, it's got heart, it's varietally correct. You know, you can smell it and you know right away it's Pinot. Um, why? I don't know. What do you smell when you smell this? Emily Reese, let me refresh your glass. Thank you. Yeah. Is there oak in there? I love that you ask because let me show you a picture. We'll put this up online. So when the grapes came into the cellar, he did a quick 15-day maceration. So um, not too long to have it be too light and kind of flippant, but not too too much either to have it be too tannic. And then once you have it, you know, if it's ever six months on the skins or something like that, you're gonna you're gonna lose color actually. So it kind of color is light, and then it is gets really. Um, there's a lot of extraction, and then color can kind of be go away. Exactly. The longer it's on there. Yep. So 15 day maceration. Um, in what he calls these truncated wooden vats. And you can look up truncated wooden vats online and you get a few different images. Um, And so on his websites, you don't have any of them, right? So I I sent Quentin a WhatsApp message being like, can you send me a picture of what (laughs) these look like? And so um, they look sort of cylindrical except for when they get to the bottom. Wow. Um, The top is closed by a stainless steel top so it's mm-hmm. you're able to close it tight for for, for a safe ferment um, you know obviously you have an airlock to let co2 come out but they are done in um, some used truncated wooden vats wow um, oak there might be like it could be like made with partially with like cherry wood or something too I mean I'm not I think uh, it's knows? oak yeah. I'm almost 100% sure that it's a hundred percent oak mm-hmm. but if there were a few staves in there where that were like cherry wood or something I wouldn't be surprised sure. Like it smells to me kind of like red currants or like red currant jam because it's pretty and it's pretty tart. Like when yeah. I taste it, it's definitely red fruits, not any other other color of fruit. Mm-hmm. And when I taste it, it ta- it's got this warmth, like this slight bit more of extraction due to, of course, you know the tannin that that is from the oak is there too, as well as the grapes. But there's this extraction that I wonder, like in the Baden and the Württemberg area in southwestern Germany. So we're just across the border from Alsace, the Rhine River. I'm wondering, like, was it warmer in the Baden? Because it tastes like it could have been a warm vintage in 2016 or warmish for Pinot. Like it's not angular. I mean, the acidity is angular, but the fruit isn't angular. You know what I mean? Like if Jolly Rancher had a black cherry. Okay. <laughs> no, that's not wrong. I swear to God, that's not wrong. Smell is not smell is subjective. So what oh, you're that smelling? Oh, was tasting. I'm sorry. Oh, taste is subjective in the in the fruit category as well. If you were to say, Jill, this has low acidity, I'd be like, you're wrong, Emily oh, Reese. But yeah. does it 
at all remind you of the Pinot Noir we had a couple episodes ago that we recorded? What is similar to it and what is different, if you can remember? Mm, I, I really c- can't. I can't remember. Because didn't we have a red one in between those two that I liked a lot? I mean, this wine tastes to me quite a bit different than the Pinot Noir that we focused on a couple weeks ago, which was a German Pinot Noir, very elegant, very correct. But they both use natural um, native indigenous yeasts. But here, this is not filtered. That wine is filtered. Mm. This wine has no sulfur dioxide added. The the other wine from the Fultz region of Germany did. So... Um, to me, this has more of a little bit of an edge to it, a little little bit more aromatic complexity to it. Um, okay. Both, you're right, both in the red fruit realm. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So here's a question. Okay. What I would pose to sommeliers out there, be interesting to note, if I poured this for them, what would, would they say it's, because it's executed in a French way, right? A Frenchman is making it in a way that he knows, the okay. way he makes French wine. Yeah. He's not filtering it. A lot of wines in Germany are filtered. Okay. I mean, a lot of wines in France are filtered too, let's be sure. honest. But sure. if we're thinking about people doing more natural practices, they're way, they're, I would say as a, by and large, France is way more advanced in the esoterica of like less intervention. Okay. Yeah. And so Germany, even though they're doing a lot of people are doing more natural practices, there is like this small amount of cheesecloth like filtration kind of thing, whatever. Mm-hmm. If you were to put this in front of a sommelier, I'd be curious if they'd say, Oh yeah, this is smells like German Pinot. Well, right. it is German Pinot. Right. But it's made in this French execution of yes. natural wine, which I think is fascinating. It is. Natural winemakers, they're definitely like going out on a limb to like make this really difficult to render product uh, that is really honest, sometimes faulty, hopefully not though in the best cases. And, and a lot of conventional people, or I should say a lot of people that are into conventional wines or that defend the old notion of terroir, I honestly think are like scared shitless because this is territory that they don't know how to define. They don't know how to deal with. They could taste this and be like, this is delicious. And the minute they find out that it was made the way it was made, they'd be like, well, that's not terroir-driven wine, or that's not whatever. The wine gets more and more interesting as it gains air. More and more floral, more and more minerally, more and more like like outdoors in winter, like all kinds of all kinds oh. of things. Barky. Yeah. But not like oaky bark. Just no. like just like nature you, bark. Yes, thank you. Na- nature bark. Chin chin. <laughs> to Quentin Boris, thanks for uh keeping things real and under the worst of circumstances, you know? Yeah, I mean he couldn't just not have wine that year. Right? I mean, I mean, maybe he could have, but why not just try something? Why not collaborate and just see what comes yeah. of it? The worst that could happen is he drinks it and sells it to his neighbors, you know? Right. But he made it, and the importer was like, hell's yes. <laughs> hell's to the yes. <laughs> so on our know. list uh, at the wine bar that I'm working at, we write Loire slash Baden. Fun. And how many people are like, 
What are you talking about? What yeah. are you talking? What do you mean it comes from both regions? Yeah. <laughs> Which is so interesting. And I what I wonder is like you have all the yeasts that are on these grapes. Yeah. They're all from Andy's vineyards and the farmers he's working with vineyards, right? So wow. like then you ship that shit over to the Loire. Right. And now your cellar has, has that, that yeast in it. it. Right. You know, like it's just like, like wow. what's going on? You know, I don't That's know. It's amazing. Just like, Freaking love it. All right, so. So. Collaboration <laughs> shit show number two on the compositional I level. I love this one. Yes, I love this one. Good God. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly there are. Com- <laughs> I just have to laugh. I'm sorry. It's like, how do you even describe this? Uh, well, you describe it by saying um, there were five French composers who, quote unquote, collaborated on a ballet in the uh, early 1920s. Uh, and or at least it premiered in 1921. And I'm assuming that's when they got the job too, because I think <laughs> that's why they got the job is because a composer named Georges Auric, Auric basically is how, you know, whatever, A-U-R-I-C. Yeah. George got this commission from no less than Jean Cocteau. And Cocteau is like, hey, I'm going to make this ballet. I'm writing these things and I want to do this ballet and can you give me music and I think that Arik was like yes that's a quick time frame let me ask all my friends and so he <laughs> asked five of his friends for help one of them said absolutely not and I'm so, sick yeah he <laughs> says like I'm sick and so uh five five of them uh wrote these little tiny very short vignettes for this cocteau ballet that has a completely nonsensical plot. Uh, it has French narration, and it sounds like either one composer writing in as different of styles as possible, or it definitely sounds like five different composers writing. I can't wait. I want to for... see this on my 60th birthday. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's when I want to see this. I want to see this when I'm like kind of old, yeah. maybe a little fucked up because I've just <laughs> seen too much, but not enough. Maybe yeah. I have a little dementia by then. Yeah. And I go see this and I'd be like, you know, the world's okay. Cause they're like getting, it's like a, it's the, the marriage uh, at, at the, the Eiffel, Eiffel Tower, Tower right? Yep. Something like that. Eiffel and Tower. So, Lumiere de la Tour Eiffel. And, it's like the wedding scene, but then someone eats someone else, and Isn't then there a like lion or a tiger, or something yes, comes a, in. A lion comes and eats one eats of the someone. attendees or something. Yeah, there's a photographer there. Yeah, it's just a mess. It's a there's me- a general, like a military general, who stands up and gives a speech. And the fun thing about this music is that it really is all just satire. You know, it's all kind of poking fun at what. It's supposed to be. I feel like it would be like Monty Python. Yeah. And the Holy Grail, yes. but without, with no sort of story. Yeah. Like with if they were just story, like going yeah. like running around yeah. and talking like this and like <laughs> killing rabbits and shit. And then all of a sudden. Yes. Like, I don't know. It's a, it's a mess. Darius Mio wrote three movements. Francis Poulenc, who was very young at the time, wrote two month, two movements. And Germaine Taillefer, she wrote two movements. And then the Swiss, Arthur Honegger or Oneguer, uh, he wrote one movement. And quotes Gounod in it, which is fun. So uh, it's just funny. There's an overture. There's a wedding march, which is hilarious. Uh, the general gives a speech. 
some brothers show up or something. There's a, a waltz. Somebody gets eaten. There's a funeral. There's another dance. And then they process out. I mean, that's really all there is to it. So. Well, let's proce- process in. And yeah, let's <laughs> listen, listen to, to a little business. bit of the overture here. Uh, so this movement, yes, by Georges Aurique. It's also fun that the wedding is on Bastille Day. So the wedding takes place on the 14th of July on the first or second floor of the Eiffel Tower. Not even at the top of the Eiffel Tower. After listening to a little bit of this, yeah, can we listen to a different composer's yes. totally different movement? Yes. Do you want to listen to some Darius Mio? Yeah. All right. We'll listen to the second movement, The Wedding March, is by Mio. And as is often the case with Mio, you're going to hear things that sound like they're happening in different keys simultaneously. It sounds like the bass is off in its own world. It's <laughs> really great. <laughs> He loved it. So he'd have the bass in one key and the treble in another key. And, you know, there are different ways that you can, as a listener, hear that. You can hear, you can... Because the question becomes, can we as listeners actually hear two keys at once? Well, you kind of can. But you can also hear it as one key with a bunch of chromaticism or with a bunch of notes mm-hmm. that don't belong, right? So, yeah. So there are two different ways you can hear stuff like that. It's always really fun with Mio to balance that line of tonality and it's clearly tonal but it's just uh different his his own way you know it's fun fun stuff such a cool piece i mean i personally love how different the music of like honiger honiger or honiger sounds his is very lush and full and super romantic and let's listen to a little yeah, bit let's, yeah let's let's And then there's some really beautiful writing from Germaine Affair. She's the one who lived the longest out of that whole crew. She was great. She actually took a keen interest in writing music for wind band later in her life. So there's like a lot of band music by Germaine Affair. Let's listen to a little bit of her waltz I really like. (laughs) 
so good. Yes. So good. <laughs> don't you want to just be waltzing on the Eiffel Tower drinking, I don't know, anything really? Cassis and sparkling wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just thought about walking into a salon that was like a downstairs bar that you didn't know existed and that yeah. was on and people were actually like, they were dressed like they're dressed now, hoodies, jeans, <laughs> you know, freaking hipster boots, rolled up jeans, yeah. and yet they knew how to modern day waltz to that. That'd be amazing. And I'll drink a natty wine. I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. Cheers to that. Oh, it's like my best dream ever. So this last collaboration that we're going to talk about on the wine slash beer side is um, it's a really cool collaboration that, you know, the first one we talked about was a dire situation made made right or made better yeah. by a generous friend. Obviously, he paid for the fruit, but yeah. um, that's really cool that he was able to make a viable and delicious, delicious wine out of it. There's so many other collaborations in the wine world um, – that I could go into, but I won't, because yeah. I think this is one of the coolest. Thank you to uh, my cohort in crime at Bar Brava for the idea, because I was all over the place like, oh, I'm going to do our Cuvée Brava, which is yeah. a collaboration between the bar, myself, and a winemaker, Samuel Cano. I was going to go into Esmeralda Garcia and her collaboration with her importer, who collaborated then with us. So many <laughs> out there. Yeah. And Dan was like, what about that guy who, like, in Noir, who, like, made his wine out of awesome bod and fruit? So thanks, Dan, for that. Um, so Bent Paddle, we've talked about them once on the show before. Mm-hmm. A brewery out of Duluth, Minnesota, using Lake Superior water. Thank you. Thank you. They have a lot of great beers. And one of theirs, this summer, they released Trampled. And it was like up right around 5% alcohol, and it was flipping delicious. And the reason they called it Trampled, it was like their collaboration with a music group, Trampled by Turtles. Which is an awesome group. Duluth-based as well, I believe. Uh, yeah, they're, well, they're, and they're uh, like a bluegrass. Yeah. Really cool. Not classical. Not classical. <laughs> yeah, definitely more modern bluegrass. But they're awesome. Yeah, they're awesome. Yeah. Um, and Trampled said, hey, you know, they, they obviously had talks, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Trampled was like, I, I imagine they said, this is the kind of beer we would want to drink on tour. I can yeah. drink more than one. I'm not going to be wasted by some 8% alcohol hazy IPA. Yeah. And Bent Paddle obviously loves balance in their beers. There's not a beer I don't think that they make that's like over the top, yeah. although they are making some like baked stout right now that I'm a little bit apprehensive about. But anyway, <laughs> that's neither here nor there. So they came up with this really delicious beer that is like, just this really bright kind of light hay color. It looks like it's unfiltered when you pour it in a glass, even though it may be. Um, and it's not too hoppy for mm-hmm. a pale ale, for an American pale ale. It's just utterly yeah, like quenchable, crushable. Yep. Crushable, quenchable, 
It doesn't even have to be really crisply cold. It's just a delicious, refreshing beer. And you and I got turned on to that beer over the summer. Yeah. What What did you think about it? Oh, man. I love how how it's light, but there's heft. You know what I mean? It, like, like a flavor, intensity yes. of flavor. Yeah. yeah. Like there's good flavor to it. It's not just like, oh, this is a light, pissy beer. It's like, no, this is low alcohol, but full of flavor kind of and it, it wasn't like a commercial but it's true that's what it was like yeah <laughs> and good. it wasn't it wasn't like the the canoe that had that's like a session pale ale that yeah. had like it kind of smells like it wants to be a hoppy pale ale but it's does. not yeah but it's still light mm-hmm. it's not like that it's just it was a really cool really intentional collaboration like you tasted it and you were like well this is bent paddle and this tastes like something trampled by turtles want to drink. It was like perfect, you know? I mean, yeah. I think a lot of times in the beer world that doesn't exist because you have two brewers that come in and they're like, let's put this ingredient from my land into yeah, this water from, from your land, land and yeah. make a beer and it's yeah. delicious, but it doesn't, I don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Bent to, paddle. To mm. bent paddle, to trample by turtles. Yeah. Supposedly there's going to be another collaboration. Nice. I don't know if it's going to be a fall tour thing. I don't know if it's going to be a next summer tour thing, but the beer was such a success that... Good. What, do you have any thoughts on, final thoughts on, like, the wine-beer collaboration? Because I know you probably don't drink like that, right? You don't think about that when you're going to buy a wine or something, so... Yeah. Well, I just always think it's wonderful when people share their stuff and make good stuff. You know? I mean, it's that simple. Just whether it's a musical collaboration, however that turns out to be whether it's a total train wreck like the ballet we listened to from France it's not the only ballet that was written by that by the way there are a lot of by committee ballets <laughs> kind of out there mm-hmm. um, whether they're Russian or French or it's, it's not a not a one-off for that to have happened um, but when it comes to the wine and the beer I can say this as an outsider who's new still really to kind of thinking about wine and beer and spirits at all, aside from, you know, just a, something to drink. I probably will perhaps always continue to be most impressed with wine collaborations just because, you know, you get once a year to do that. And the fact that, you know, this man had frost and just was like screwed and then could call up a friend in a different country and be like, yo, can I have some grapes? And then make a delicious wine is that's amazing to me, and it, yeah, it's great that Trampled by Turtles are a great band, and Bent Paddle is obviously like such delicious brewery, and that's a cool collaboration too. But you know, there's something special about the whole wine thing. I mean, that's a whole complicated beast, you well, know. And, and just look at the label. So there's a, a flower, and it says Pinot Noir. Yeah, <laughs> it doesn't say <laughs> what vintage. It, it doesn't say what nope. country. So you're gonna look at this, and your immediate question is going to be like, you're going to buy this if you like Pinot Noir, yeah. but you know nothing about it. When you turn it around, it says, Vent de la Communauté Européenne. So, wine from the European community, from the EU, <laughs> because he can't say it's from France, right? and he can't say it's, it's from the war. He can't say it's from Germany, because right. it wasn't vinified in Germany. So, if, if wow. I had no idea, if I were a sommelier, but I wasn't living in the natural wine world, yeah. I would look at this and be like... Pardon my French. My first thought would be, "What the fuck is this? Yeah, like, why exactly. Is this? Like, so, why would I even pick that up and buy it? Uh, so it's cool that yeah. this engage this increases the need for a conversation. Yeah, which I love that about that. Mm-hmm. So, Can people even buy that anywhere? I mean, 
Yeah, you can find it around. I mean, a lot of markets, it's sold out in Minneapolis. Sure. People kind of still don't know a right. lot about wines like this. Uh, yeah. So there are a few bottles left hanging around okay. hanging around the city. But Gotcha. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, we won't have a lot of these in years to come because that means people have had an issue, right? But right. when they do, right. they know that uh, supporters like us will get into it. So to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Big long pour for Jill. Just kidding. I wanted to thank my dear friend and co-host, Emily Reese, for collaborating on this podcast. I think that it's a, for me personally, wine would be nothing without the outside factors that influence it, right? It would be a mere way of getting drunk, right? Mm -hmm. But when we can attach it to things like composers in this case, but uh, paintings, rhythm, architecture, nature, Wine takes on more context and more meaning. With that, I wouldn't be in this business. So this is a a big part of my career, our our projects like this. And so thanks for being a part of the collaboration. Why, thank you. (laughs) What was that? Why, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Joe Mott. (laughs) Perfect. (laughs) Done. Thanks for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can see a wine list, a beer list, a playlist, all of the lists at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're also on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc.